Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's national feminist current affairs programs, produced by women and gender diverse broadcasters at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on unceded Kulin lands and broadcasted nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Senya. On today's show, we speak with Lena Chen, a Chinese American artist and scholar currently pursuing PhD in performance studies at UC Berkeley. Her creative practice and academic work looks at Asian womanhood in the diaspora. Today we chat about her paper, Performing Power, Asian American Resistance Through BDSM, and the online game Only Bands she created to address surveillance of sex workers online. Content warning that we do speak about Asian fetishization. Let's hear from Lena. Welcome to Women on the Line, Lena. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? And what are the themes that you are interested in exploring at the moment in your creative and academic practice? My name is Lena, and I am a Chinese-American artist and scholar currently pursuing my PhD in performance studies at UC Berkeley. My creative practice and my scholarship look at um, the experience of Asian womanhood in the diaspora. And as someone who came into art through performance myself, um, much of my research um, and the ways in which I delve into these topics is very much embodied. Um, It deals with the trauma of living in a racialized, sexualized, and gendered body um, in the U.S. Um, And I also look at different intersections um, between the ways in which um, Asian female sexuality has been pathologized and vilified, um, and the connections to um, white heterosexual masculinity. You have a draft paper called Performing Power, Asian American Resistance Through BDSM. Can you tell listeners what piqued your interest on this topic, and what was your approach to writing this paper? So I came into this work through my own lived experience of Uh, having worked in the sex industry, doing a variety of things. I would say light dom slash fetish work um, to stripping, which is how I paid for my um, MFA degree when I was in art school. And I had a lot of experiences in which I found myself confronted with a kind of contradiction. All my life, I'd been fetishized for being an Asian woman, and it was something that I really resented. Um, But here, I was working in a context in which that fetishization was actually something I could capitalize on. So the same guy that you would completely run away from on the street is exactly the type of customer who's going to pay you the most and who you would approach in, you know, say a strip club to give a lap dance. Those were like the easiest clients to sell a dance to. And I was very aware that, you know, I I had a certain type of politics um, that existed, you know, outside of sex work that seemed to, you know, reject the types of yeah, othering and fetishizing that happened to me within sex work. But rather than, you know, thinking of this as like simply some kind of like incompatibility, I became really 
interested in considering like, you know, what does this cognitive dissonance tell me about myself and how is it that I can, you know, house both parts of this um, in the same body. And it was something that, you know, a, a lot of other sex workers I knew were also encountering. And it, it didn't just have to do with race either, right? right? People fetish all, fetishize all kinds of all kinds of things in really, you know, problematic ways. Um, and I became interested um, in looking at the ways in which sex workers, and in particular um, dominatrixes, could claim power um, from their experiences of racialization and othering and fetish, um, and how they would kind of navigate these contradictions. And maybe sometimes the work wasn't always empowering, right? But you know, how did that inform um, the way they also lived when they stepped outside of the dungeon? How did that, you know, change or, you know, augment their experience of being racialized and othered and like fetishized out, you know, on the street? Um, so that was kind of the starting point for for this paper. Those are the kind of questions that were percolating in my head when um, I first started having conversations with doms. Something that is conclusive from all the Asian pro-doms that you interviewed is that fetishization is inescapable. For listeners who may not understand, can you explain what Asian fetishization might look like? What are some examples from your research and perhaps even your own experience? Do you speak back, reclaim, rewrite, or reject it? Right, so there are so many ways in which um, that manifests itself that may be more or less the, the simplest example um, is that scene from Full Metal Jacket where there's the Vietnamese sex worker who says the line, me love you, long time. Um, it's been sampled in music lyrics um, and it's been said to so many Asian women um, because unfortunately it's probably one of, if not the most famous line ever said by an Asian woman in Western cinema. (laughs) Um, And so to conflate every Asian woman with that character of the Vietnamese, you know, sex worker in full full metal jacket, I mean, that is one example of um, how this fetish manifests in a very real way for your average person who may or may not be a sex worker, right, regardless. Other, I think, more subtle uh, forms of fetishizing are, you know, simply like men who have a certain racial preference (laughs) when pursuing romantic partners. Um, You know, people who, even people who may not have a sexual interest in me, like there can be like an old white lady who like went to China once, (laughs) like 15, 20 years ago, and like really liked something about the country and then tries to have a conversation with me as if I, an American-born, like ethnically Chinese person, would be somehow informed Um, about, you know, Chinese culture simply because of the way I look. There are so many ways in which people also talk to me about the aesthetics of fetishization and how that operated, right? So, um, you know, in the context of my experience working as a model for artists, I would have photographers show up with basically what's an ethnic costume, you know, like a chipao for me to wear <laughs> during our shoot. Um, or, um, you know, having um, one dom uh, had their logo on their website 
um, illustrate it in a kind of like Chinese uh, calligraphy script, even though they themselves could not read Chinese, right? And so th there are so many different like indicators of race from like topography <laughs> to wardrobe, um, you know, to many other things um, that are on a bigger spectrum. Um, but I think what happens is when you as an Asian woman encounter these types of experiences over and over again, um, these experiences of, of, of being assumed to be like a certain stereotype, assumed to be like all the other Asian women, the cumulative effect of that um, is that you really start to question your individuality and your value as a single person um, because what it means is, is that it obscures our individual traits and yet and I don't remember the scholar who said that says this but uh, I'll get back to you on that and yet this this universal experience of having been fetishized and racialized and othered that is something that is in a strange way uniting and comforting um, about being an Asian woman like when I am with my girlfriends who are Asian or with other people, you know, who are perceived, you know, as women or were assigned female at birth, we've all been through similar experiences. And that itself is a uniting factor. It is a commonality we have, right? Unite, you might not be able to generalize about the food we eat or the clothes we wear um, or, you know, even language we speak, right? But if you're living in the diaspora, you know, chances are as an Asian person um, and someone who presents as female, you've probably been through the experience of being fetishized. Um, so I was really interested when I was talking to dominatrixes, I was interested in how those personal experiences um, impacted how they would set up a scene with a client or how, yeah, how they would navigate those really complicated dynamics of maybe having a client who had very problematic ideas <laughs> about what it meant to be Asian and how that could be a kind of territory for working out that trauma and wor working out some of the resentment that has been built up over, over a lifetime. So were there any differences you noticed between the experience of racial older Asian doms and younger Asian doms in terms of their approaches and experiences in addressing Asian fetishization? One example stands out in particular. Yin Q is probably the first Asian sex worker I'd ever heard of. And I was reading their um, column back when I was in college and undergrad. Um, many years ago. <laughs> it's my 15-year college reunion this spring, so many years ago. Um, and I didn't know them back then, but we spoke more recently. And as someone who's like an elder in the community now, um, I think Yin did have extremely different experiences when they were first starting out in the scene versus doms today. Now there are a ton of Asian doms um, on the internet, um, easily accessible through social media, who each have cultivated, you know, their particular style and, and client base and regional focuses, etc. Yin was telling me that when they were first trying to get hired at a dungeon in New York, they weren't able to get a position at one particular dungeon because that place had already had 
one dom who was Asian. And it was kind of this tokenizing (laughs) approach toward hiring where it was like, we're going to have our one Asian dom. We're going to have like our black dom. We're going to have our Latina dom, you know, and then everyone else is white. But once we filled the, (laughs) you know, token, you know, slot, ethnic slot, um, we're not going to hire anyone else. And so that was actually a reason that Yin took off for, for the Bay Area to um, get started and dom work there instead um, because they kind of struck out in New York. And now that kind of thing, obviously, it's not happening to the same degree. That's not to say there aren't discriminatory practices still in place. Um, But I think the way that we think about sex work has changed significantly. Um, The ways in which sex workers market themselves um, with the advent of the internet, like that has changed as well. Um, And I do believe that there's an abundance of opportunities out there um, where, you know, if this is the work you want to do, if you're passionate about this work, you will find the right clients or they will find you you know I, I don't think it has to be this mentality of like oh if I'm like uh the second Asian dom to show up I'm not gonna get any business um you know so I think that that has changed significantly um and I think there's so much more camaraderie as well these days in part because of that openness because people are able to connect with each other over social media um you know sex workers doing sessions together or you know recommending clients to each other like all all of that community and and infrastructure um I think is so heartening um and it really points to the fact that we don't have to be in competition with each other that um solidarity is also really necessary when engaging criminalized and and stigmatized labor Keep it moving forward to what's ahead of me. You're gonna see, I'm not gonna waste energy. Cause I'm free, and I'm a free. Call the people I love, I try to keep. We get deep, keep it straight. And we're never gonna stay asleep. Finally, what I hate to say about me, don't worry me. I keep it moving forward to what's ahead of me. You're gonna see, I'm gonna be, and you're gonna remember me. I'm someone shot a whiskey, not everyone's tea. Cause I'm free, and I'm a free. Call the people I love, I try to keep. Get deep, keep it straight. And we're never gonna stay asleep. Finally, what I hate to say about me, don't worry me. I keep it moving forward to what's ahead of me. You're gonna see, I'm gonna be, and you're gonna remember me. Underneath my trouble, I'm gonna find me the trouble.
And she engages in a humiliation scene with this person by describing their penis using terms that could be applied to Asians. Um, So petite or docile, for example. Um, And eventually the scene culminates in um, Cleo saying that this person's penis is a kind of like model minority. Um, And I thought that was just such a clever way of taking something that is so oppressive and limiting um, to an Asian person who has to like experience um, this, this, this stereotype every day, um, taking that and like doing something playful with it that is subversive and honestly quite creative, right? To describe someone's penis, a white man's penis <laughs> as a model minority and to like literally, you know, flip that um, and project it upon the dominant subject, who is the one um, reinforcing all these stereotypes, right? Um, And of course, you know, this isn't every single BDSM scene. Like, not all the work is going to be um, as playful or as uh, politically educational. But I think there are these moments, these glimpses of possibility in there. And those are the experiences that I'm I'm interested in examining. Um, and, And also looking at how those experiences are liberating, not just for the dom, but also for the client who is learning something as well. I want to touch on the game you developed called Only Bands. I loved playing it and I think it's a great educational tool for those who want to understand the surveillance of sex workers online. Can you share with listeners what Only Bands is about and what has been the reception to it from sex workers and allies? Yeah. So Only Bands is a collaborative project that examines digital censorship and surveillance of sex workers through putting players of this game into the position of a sex worker trying to build a fan base and earn money online through content creation. And OnlyBands is a play, obviously, on OnlyFans um, and came at a time when a lot of sex workers were reeling from the impact of SESTA-FOSTA, which is a piece of U.S. legislation um, that severely limited the ways in which sex workers could advertise and and market themselves through digital channels. Um, OnlyBands was received with a lot of um, success, both in terms of... um, the grants and exhibition opportunities that we've gotten, um, as well as the feedback that we've gotten from the community, which I think has been the most important part. We made the game through having conversations with sex workers who'd been directly impacted. Um, Many of the people on our team um, who created the work together are sex workers. Um, And I think nearly all of us have, you know, been at risk of being deplatformed or have been deplatformed. So it was something that was also very much a reflection of of our desire to do something with the frustration we had um, over being repeatedly marginalized by these platforms. 
that were also at the same time profiting from us. Um, the game relied on research from Hacking Hustling, which is a coalition of sex workers and technologists. Um, it also asked sex workers globally to submit to an open call content that had been taken down or flagged from their accounts. And all of that is incorporated into the game. Um, and finally, after we released the second version of the game, um, we got some extra funding and we created a web accessible version. Um, and we also created a new ending that was more speculative about what a liberated future for sex workers online could look like. Um, because we realized, you know, the game we originally created did a really good job of reflecting the current problems and the current frustrations. Um, but, you know, it's also kind of a downer <laughs> to uh, play um, because the reality um, is that any kind of policy change is so slow moving, right? So we added a new ending just in the last year um, that is way more hopeful and comes out of conversations and workshops with sex workers um, through our collaboration with Decoding Stigma. And finally, can you tell us what is coming up for you over the next few months? What are you looking forward to this year? Oof, what am I looking forward to? Um, I am currently living in Berkeley to finish coursework for my PhD, but I'll be moving to LA um, back to Monterey Park where I was raised and which is um, an Asian enclave. Um, and I'm doing that in June. So I'm really excited about proximity to good Asian food again and being around a lot of um, native Chinese speakers because my Chinese has steadily deteriorated <laughs> throughout the years. Um, and since I have a son now, I'm also really excited that he can, you know, grow up in that environment where he's exposed to Asian culture and language and that he'll be close to his um, grandparents as well. And that's all for Women on the Line today. We spoke with Lena Chen, a Chinese-American artist and scholar whose creative and academic work is exploring Asian womanhood in the diaspora. We spoke about her paper, Performing Power, Asian American Resistance Through BDSM, as well as the online game she created, titled Only Bands, to address surveillance of sex workers online. You can try out the game at onlybandsgame.com. Links will be provided in our show notes. Thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. And the feature song on today's episode was Finally by M.I.A. I'm Senya, and tune in to Women on the Line next week on your local community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.